Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and turn to Philippians, the end of chapter 3 today. Back in around the middle of October, I believe, we started our study of this great book of Philippians so that we could study it together, walking through it fairly slowly to, to learn what the Spirit would teach us about the joy in Christ, obedience to Christ, the glory of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the comfort of Christ. <clears throat> and at the time, I didn't give any thought to what I might be preaching on on Easter Sunday this year. And yet, as it turns out, the, the verses that we're at in Philippians are perfect verses for us to look at and to study on Easter Sunday. <clears throat> What I want to do is to read, starting in verse 17. Is that what we put in the bulletin? Yes. I want to start in verse 17, and I'll read through chapter 4, verse 1. But our focus today, in particular, is going to be on chapter 3, starting in verse 20. So verse 20, 21, and then the first verse of chapter 4. But I'll read starting in verse 17 so that we hear the context of these verses. Let me ask you if you're able, would you join me today in standing for the reading of God's word? Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Here's verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray one more time. Father, these words of your scripture are given to us for our joy, that we might, in the midst of trial and difficulty, stand firm. That we might be given the joy to sustain the stability of our hearts, that we might be sustained even in difficult times to obey the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, you have exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. And so, Father, as we read these verses today and as we study them, would you, by the power of your Spirit, give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to humbly and joyfully accept your word, to store it up in our hearts, and to practice it in our lives? In the name of Christ, amen. Please be seated. Hope is the fuel of the Christian life. We could probably say more broadly that hope is the fuel for all of life, but in particular for 
walking the Christian life and in regular, everyday, ordinary life, to walk the Christian life, we need the fuel of hope. We need the fuel of hope. Without it, we so easily would fall prey to despair, to discouragement, to difficulties, because we know the kind of world we live in. We're not strangers to the trials of living in this world. We all know how it is. We know that even biblically speaking, that the world was originally created good, that God made this world and everything in it, and when he'd finished, he looked at it and he pronounced, this is very good, that he was very pleased with it, that it was a a good world that God enjoyed. He was happy about it. And yet we also know that we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, that it's no longer the good creation of our good God that it once was, but Because sin has entered the world, the entire world and everything in it has been affected. It's no longer good in the same way that it once was, but but now it's fallen. Now it's fallen and affected. And to live in a fallen world, all of us, even as Christians, we suffer the effects of that. We suffer the effects. We suffer disease, frustration, evil, injustice. We know what it is to have broken relationships, to endure broken bodies, to undergo the injustice that comes from broken systems. We suffer all of these things because the world around us is broken and fallen in sin. We suffer because we ourselves are broken by our own sin. And so we're not merely victims of a broken world. We contribute to living in a broken world. We have to admit that we are often our own greatest enemy. We do things that hurt ourselves. We do things that hurt one another. And worst of all, we do those things which are offensive to our God. Living in this world is hard, we know that, and yet, today is Easter. Today is Easter, the day that that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The day we celebrate Jesus when the world and all of its evil and all of its brokenness and sin did its absolute worst to the absolute best person, the Son of God, pure, blameless, sinless, killed him, and yet, by the power of God, he raised from the dead on that third day. Today is Easter, and that means in the midst of this difficulty and all the sin that surrounds us, we lift up our heads and we look to Jesus and we see good news. Good news for all of us to sustain us. See, what we see in the Bible in the New Testament, it it is always pointing us as believers in Christ two directions. It, It points us backwards to look back to the resurrection of Christ. And this is, of course, what we do on Easter. We're celebrating something in the past, something that is a historical event that happened once 2,000 years ago, the resurrection, and it points us back to look at the victory of Jesus and what he accomplished in that. But there's more. The Bible also points us forward. It points us forward with hope to look at, the, at what is coming to our own resurrection. On that great day of Jesus' coming when He will be the first fruits from among the dead, but he will also raise those who believe in him from the dead to be with him. And right now, we live in the middle of these. And it can be easy for us to get lost in the present because the present can be overwhelming and we're not able to lift up our heads and to see either backwards to the victory of Jesus or forward to the great celebration on that day. We get lost in the present and so we're discouraged. And so we despair And what we need is hope. That's what this passage at the end of Philippians chapter 3 gives us. It gives us so much of. It tells us 
these three things. It tells us first who we are, and then it tells us, even more importantly, who Jesus is. And then it tells us, because of that, stand firm, have hope, take heart. Those three things in these three verses that we saw, verse 20, 21, and, and then verse 1 of chapter 4. First of all, these are verses that give us hope by telling us who we are. Namely, verse 20, as it says, our citizenship is in heaven. He's just warned us previously, verse 19, about those who, whose mind are set on earthly things. Whose minds are set on earthly things, and it contrasts us with them. It says that's not us. We are those whose citizenship is in heaven. And this is very important. This is a very significant word, this word citizenship, what it says. It's, it's the same word as we saw uh, back in chapter 1 in verse 27, when Paul is exhorting them with what is essentially the main exhortation of all of the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27, when he says to them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what we said was, that, that's a good translation, but we could do a little better because it's got that same word from uh, chapter 3. What he's really saying there is, walk in a manner that is worthy of your citizenship. Walk in a manner that is live your life in a way that is worthy of your citizenship. That's the exhortation. Live worthy of your citizenship. That is who you are. Now, the Philippians, we know, would have understood that very well. Even if it's a little oblique to us at first, to the Philippians in the first century, they would have latched right on to that because they lived in Philippi. And if we remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was not in Rome, it was not in Italy, but it was a Roman colony. And so that was a great point of pride for Philippi, going back to 30 years before the, death of, or before the birth of Christ, 30 BC. That was a time when the Roman emperor, who was Octavian at the time, reorganized the city of Philippi, and he resettled it. He took a bunch of Roman citizens, including a lot of ex-military, a lot of the veterans, those who have the most sort of civic pride, those military pride, and he sent them to settle the city of Philippi. And he, they built a forum there. They were governed by Roman law, which was enforced by military officers appointed directly from Rome. In other words, Philippi was meant to be a miniature Rome, even though it was in the far country. If you lived there, you didn't live in the, the Roman Empire. You were away from it, but it was a Roman colony, which meant to live there, that was your citizenship, was in Rome. They knew exactly what it meant to live in one place, surrounded by one culture with one set of values, and yet to say, my citizenship belongs somewhere better. And I govern myself by the laws of someplace better. And my allegiance is to someplace better. And I find hope, not in my surroundings of where I live, but I find hope in the fact that I am tied by my citizenship to a better place with better laws and a better governor. That, that was essentially what it was in a, in a worldly sense. And so it made complete sense to them when Paul would say, either as an exhortation to, to live a life that is worthy of your true citizenship. Or as he says here at the end of chapter 3, here's the good news for you today, that your citizenship is in heaven. That although you live now as in a colony that's in the far country, that you don't seem to enjoy all the benefits of being in the, the empire itself or in heaven itself. Nevertheless, you're a colony of that. That's what your hope is found in. 
That's how you govern yourself. That's how you make decisions about who you are, what your identity is, the way you're going to live your life. It's going to be done in a way that is appropriate to your citizenship. That's all bound up in what Paul is telling the Philippians here. And now he's telling them here, you are a citizen of of heaven. That's your identity. That's who you are. It may be discouraging at times to live in the far country because you don't receive all the benefits that you would receive if you were actually in heaven itself. There's still lots of struggles. There's still lots of of temptations. There's still lots of disappointment. but, But take hope because your citizenship is not here. You're not permanent here. That's not your identity, your value system, your hope. It's not here. It's in heaven. And and that's how we begin to understand what the church is because when he writes this, he's not speaking just to individuals as individuals. He's talking to the church. He's saying this is a colony that that gathers together. Like any any colony of exiles that's in the far country, how do you maintain the values of the homeland? Well, you do it by gathering together on a regular basis. You do it by sharing meals together. You do it by enforcing your own values in your colony. And he will say, Paul will say, uh, Peter will say, he wrote his first epistle, 1 Peter, to the elect exiles in the dispersion. So that, that's exactly what the church is. We're a colony here that, that has its own values in the midst of the wider world. That we do not take our cue for what's important in life, what truly has value, what we should pursue. All these things that define who a person is, we don't take our lead on those from the outside world. We take our lead on those from our true citizenship, which is heaven. And so we gather. We gather weekly to reinforce our values, biblical values, values of grace, values of of Christ. We share a meal together. That's what we do when we gather around the Lord's table each Sunday is we're we're sharing a meal as a means of reinforcing our values that what matters to us is the death of Christ. But that's how you enter into this particular people is by putting your faith in Christ, partaking in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We do this because we are a colony of heaven. We gather for worship to reinforce what's truly important to us. That's how you're to live as a citizen how you're to live in, in this world, not as a citizen of this world, but as a citizen of heaven. And he would say to us, make no mistake, he knows how difficult it is to live in that situation. He knows how difficult it is to live in the midst of a world that doesn't share your values, where you don't fully fit in, where you don't fully embrace the hope that that culture has because you are different. And yet he says, be encouraged by this, your citizenship is in heaven. And here's one of the interesting things in a passage like this. This is what the Philippians would have known. They would have known that when things get difficult, when things are hard, when they're really just feeling the, the oddness of being a Roman citizen in the midst of the far country, their great hope was not that someday they were just going to pack their bags and go to Rome. Their great hope was that someday the Roman Empire was going to expand to its great fullness and fill all the world, and then they would live in the midst of it. That's the Christian hope that Paul is referring to as well. He's saying not that someday we're going to go to heaven. What does he say? It's very clear here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. We're waiting for one who's going to come from heaven to earth. And when he comes, he will transform all of the earth 
and expand to all borders the kingdom of heaven. That then on that great day, we will no longer be in the far country because the homeland will have come to us and it will have taken over. And our king, the one true king, will be recognized throughout all the world. Isn't that the hope of chapter 2? That he is the one who has been given the name that is above every name. He is the one to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the great hope. And, and he says, yes, it's difficult to live as an exile in the far country, but remember, first, this is not your home. Your citizenship is, in, is elsewhere. And second, he says, we are waiting for the king to come. We are waiting for the king to come, and he points us here to Christ. He points us here to Christ to say, from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it true that so often the discouragements that we face in life, the difficulties, are a result of the fact that we have taken our eyes off of Christ? Isn't that so often the case that, like Peter, right when he stepped out of the boat, and he took his eyes off Christ and began to sink, isn't that the truth that so often in this world, even when we face discouragement and we need the hope of Christ, that is exactly the time when we're so tempted to take our eyes off of Christ? And so the hope here is, first, remember who you are, but second, would you remember who Christ is? Would you put, our, put your eyes back on Christ? This is Easter, after all. A time to look at Christ and see him in all his glory for who he is. To remember the bigger story of Jesus Christ, to see him in his humility. Who he, though he was rich, yet for our sake would become poor. Would become obedient to death, even death on a cross that he in his humility would be willing to do that, to take that suffering, that pain on himself, not because of anything he did or anything he deserved, but to take our suffering on himself, to humble himself and yet to be exalted by God the Father because of it, to defeat the final enemy of death and in that exaltation to be given all authority on heaven and earth. He has, as verse 21 says, the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That is Jesus reigning in heaven. You see, this is what we believe about his exaltation, is that if we were to go back to Luke or to Acts and to read the story of him being ascending into heaven to his throne, that is not a story of Jesus leaving his people to be absent for a while. That is actually a story of him taking the position where he has greatest influence over this world and over our lives because he's going to his throne from where he reigns and rules over all things and has the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so the text points us here to the titles of Jesus when it says we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's three titles in there, savior, Lord, and Christ. And we see in those titles of course, we see what we expect to see, that they tell us who Jesus is. They tell us who Jesus is. He's a savior. He's a savior of his people. Jesus is the only one who can save sinful people from the wrath of God that is rightly and justly poured out on all people because we're all guilty of sin against God. We're sinful, and so we're guilty. Because we're guilty, we're liable to punishment. The punishment is the wrath of God against us. And yet, this is what Jesus did in his grace and in his mercy. He willingly and humbly 
took that punishment, took the wrath of God that we deserve, and he took it on himself in order that we might take the reward that he deserved onto ourselves. That's what it means that Jesus is a savior, is that he saves us from our sin, from the wrath of God. Isn't it interesting that to say he's a savior is to say that he saves us from God. It's his wrath that is the, the danger. It's his wrath that is the punishment for our sins, and yet Jesus saves us from it. He's also Lord. He's Savior. He's Lord. He's King. He reigns with all power, and he's the Christ. We forget so often that Christ is, is not a name but a title, that he's the Messiah. He's the promised one of the Old Testament who would come and fulfill all the hopes of God's people. But there's something more to these titles. There's something more to these titles than just what we so often read in them because we have to remember that Jesus is not the only one who will claim to have these titles. And that is true in the first century, and I believe it's true today, that he is Savior, Lord, Christ, but there's other people who want those titles as well. There's other people. It's well known that in the first century there were other people who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the Christ, the promised one who would fulfill all the hopes of Israel. But we also know that, that in that first century, the Caesars of Rome, who, who governed over all of the Roman Empire, claimed to be Lord. They took that title for themselves, kurios. Not just, they, they didn't believe they were just a, a king who was governing as a servant to govern the, the empire for the sake of the people as a servant. No, no, they took the title as Lord. And they would take the title of Savior. To say that they were the one in whom you should put your hope. Right? Not just that they were the one governing figure. No, they were the one who could make everything in the world okay again. They would claim that they were the one who you should trust in. If you wanted all the bad things in your life to go away, then put your trust in the Caesar. He's the one who has the power. He's the one who can change things and make everything better. They even claim to be gods. And so when Paul tells us we are waiting for Jesus, he is the Savior and the Lord and the Christ, he's saying something very specific. He's saying there are rival claims to these titles, but we reject them. We see them, we understand them, and we intentionally say, no, that is not a Savior. You are not a Lord. Only Jesus is the true Savior from sins. Only Jesus intentionally would lay down his life for the sake of his people and be raised again on the third day in a public way and exalted to heaven. That means Jesus is the true Savior. Jesus is the true Lord of this world. And I said it's not just in the first century that that was happening, but, but we know that it happens even today. Even today there will be rival people, rival ideologies, rival things that lay claim to these titles of being Lord or of being Savior. It's not just people, it's things too. Aren't we guilty of sometimes looking to our possessions to be our Savior? Don't we sometimes look to our possessions to rescue us from a life of boredom, from a life of dullness, from a life of unfulfillment. Isn't that at, at times our worst nightmare to think that we could go through life being bored and, and unfulfilled and insignificant? And so we have to find a savior from that. And so we'll look to our, perhaps we look to our possessions and say if we have the right things that 
They give us identity. They give us excitement in life. They give us fulfillment. Aren't we sometimes guilty of looking to experiences to rescue us from a life of the status quo? To make our lives worth living. To give us relevance. To give us status. To make us somebody. Aren't we sometimes guilty of looking to our employment to save us from that verdict that we're not worthwhile? To save us from the verdict that we don't have value? We so desperately want to be somebody, and so we look to all these things. We, perhaps we look to employment to say, am I doing something significant in this world? Do I have worth? Do I have value? We have all these fears. We have all these insecurities, all these doubts, and so we're looking all around for something to, to satisfy them. That's looking for a savior. That's looking for a Lord. That's looking for something that we can put all of our hopes in, all of our trust in to say, will this thing make everything better? If my hope is in this and I have that, if I find that, will I be okay? Will I have joy? Paul says, look to Jesus. And here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come and he's going to transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. He's going to take your lowly body that suffers from weakness, that is susceptible to disease, that is corruptible, and he's going to take it and he's going to transform it into a glorious body that is incorruptible. He's going to take your body which is broken by sin and fallen and it's easily tempted, it's weary, it's worn, and he's going to transform it into a glorious body that's no longer susceptible to decay. He's going to take your body that's so prone to fears and doubts and insecurities and longings, and he will answer all of them. Why? Because he alone has conquered death. He alone has conquered the great enemy at the end of life that says, you have to make something of your life before you get here. Because death levels the playing field. And if, if you're not remembered, if you weren't somebody, but Jesus has conquered that. He has taken away the fear of death because that's what Jesus himself has done in his own body, that he died and the grave could not hold him. He rose from the dead that third day with a transformed body, a glorious body, a body that is not susceptible to any of the effects of sin or the fall. And what he says is, Jesus did it. He was the first fruits. There's more to come. Jesus did it. He was first, and he will do it for you as well. For those who are alive at his coming, they will be changed. They will be transformed. For those who have died, they will be raised with a new, glorious, transformed body, no longer susceptible to decay. See, all of this is the celebration of Easter. That yes, we look backwards because we're remembering a historical event, the resurrection of Christ. But, there's more to it than that. We're also looking forward. We're also applying that to our lives and saying, this is the great hope that not only did Jesus raise from the dead, but because of that, he will come again in power with the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, and he will do it. He will subject the whole world to himself. And those who are his, who belong to him, he will raise them in glory. And we will reign with him forever. See, Easter is the hope of what's to come. It's the celebration of what has happened and the hope of what is yet to happen. That's how badly we need Easter 
as a church. We need Easter. Why? Because we need hope. Because we need something that can lift the eyes of our hearts above the the discouragements that we face in life and to say, I have hope because I look to Christ. You see, here's the best news in this passage. It's the hope that Jesus Christ has all authority given to him. In heaven and on earth, he has the power to subject all things to himself. And he is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is with us. We are his bride. And our Savior is powerful. He has overcome the grave. See, isn't it, isn't it strange so often in our lives, just in ordinary life, when we talk about hope, we say, I hope this happens. It's really more like a wish, isn't it? Like if we say, well, you know, I hope dad gets home from work in time to, to play for a while after dinner. Well, we don't know if that's going to happen. Maybe we don't even have much, much expectation that it's going to happen, but we hope it happens. Biblical hope is different. Biblical hope is confidence. Biblical hope is, is saying there is something that I absolutely know for certain is going to happen, and that gives me hope. That gives me joy. See, worldly hope so often is only met with disappointment. It just causes grief when it doesn't happen, and so we avoid it. But biblically, hope is what sustains us. It's what sustains our joy. Our certain, immutable, inexhaustible joy in the fact that Jesus has overcome evil, sadness, death, and sin. And Jesus is the one who gets the last word. And his last word is life. It's life. That's the biblical hope that empowers us to live the Christian life. That's what empowers us to set our minds on things above rather than on earthly things. That's what sustains us. And that's why he says in chapter 4, verse 1, which is really the conclusion to chapter 3, Therefore, my brothers, therefore, see, this is the, this is the conclusion of the matter. Therefore, my brothers, whom I, long, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. When we think about the hope and the joy of Easter, of what has happened with Christ and what is going to happen on that great day when Jesus returns, therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Have hope. Have resolve. Though this world with devils filled may threaten to undo us, stand firm in the midst of it. Look, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you've got your Bibles open. 1 Corinthians 15 is often just referred to as the resurrection chapter. It's the greatest chapter in the Bible on explaining the doctrine of the resurrection. And what's so interesting is he goes... 57 verses in this chapter explaining what happened when Christ was raised from the dead, the hope that we will be raised from the dead, that he has overcome death, everything about the resurrection. And he gets to the last verse, verse 58, and listen to it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, once you've absorbed all of this about the resurrection, once you know all of this great hope that is ours, what does it mean for us? Stand firm. Be steadfast. Let the doctrine of the resurrection give hope to everyday life. It means because we know the great truths of the hope that is ours, we will not be movable. We will not be as susceptible to the discouragements that we face on a daily basis. We'll still feel them. We'll still struggle with them. We won't be as susceptible because we have a hope that takes us beyond them. A hope that carries us past them. 
And isn't this what's so interesting? Is we might expect him to say, our hope is in the resurrection, our hope is in the future, our hope is in something that's great in another world long, far, far away. Therefore, don't worry about this world. Don't worry about what you're doing now. Don't polish silver on a sinking ship. It's all going away anyway. Our hope is in heaven. But he says exactly the opposite, doesn't he? If the resurrection is true, he says, stand firm. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What you are doing does matter. He says this is what gives strength to us to walk as citizens who are worthy of that kingdom. This is why it matters that we put effort into pursuing a life of discipleship. This is why it matters that we pursue the fruit of the Spirit, that we set our minds on on things above, not on earthly things. It matters what we do for the Lord. And so he says, stand firm, because Christ is coming. The one who has the power to subject all things to himself, he's coming, he's for you. So be encouraged. Continue the walk in the path of Christ. Continue to, to put effort into that. Don't despair. Don't, don't fall into the trap of, of, of discouragement because our eyes have, have drifted off Christ and are just caught in the things of this world. He says that will be a recipe for, for despair and you will lose the joy of rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is to come. So, brothers, sisters, stand firm. Be immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain because Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. Let's pray together. Father, today we give you thanks for Christ and we give you praise for Christ. And we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, will take these passages that you have given to your church. Take these words of the Bible and would you press them on our hearts? Lord, would you make us immovable through them? Would you give us the hope of heaven deep in our hearts to sustain us, to sustain our labor in the Lord, even when it feels vain? Lord, we know it's not in vain. For Jesus Christ lives and reigns from his throne. He is the one who has been given all the authority in heaven and on earth to subdue all things to himself. Lord, to his name be the glory, both now and forever. Amen and amen.